1: what's happening everybody it's your Decepticon bruiser Holden McNeely
2: Holden Holden the the spark the matrix of leadership roll out I believe in you
1: I turn into a gun bitch
2: I'm your truck daddy (laughs)
1: <laughs> Sam with
2: wiki. it's me, Truck Daddy.
1: Yeah, my parents found out about my old Truck Daddy, and they were like, "You can't have a Truck Daddy because that's like really just internet like baiting." Fine, fine.
2: Call me Optimus Prime, <laughs> okay. but when but when no one, no adults around, it's back to Truck
1: Daddy. I turn into a gun, bitch.
2: That seems illegal.
1: I <laughs> it's I just I, feel... I I am unable to well, travel. You are white, so
2: I guess it's okay.
1: I am unable to travel to Australia. Getting factoids <laughs> into the intro! <laughs> of course I'm talking to my Autobot wizard, Jake Young. <laughs> and today on the show, the subject, hell, I'll just play it out right now. We're talking about The Transformers
2: More than me the
1: that's right we're talking about transformers (laughs) this
2: property has everything a child loves uh illusions deception wheels guns uh the horrors of warfare lack of organic life uh dads uh a marked (laughs) lack of women uh boy scientists Boy scientists. A cadre of just weird Jewish men responsible for everything.
1: <laughs> it's it's every boy's dream. Uh, Japan and Marvel all in one just loving relationship. Like toy Japanese toy companies and Max and Marvel Comics. It is like the Wizard and the Bruiser. We can't not do an episode it's like on a this. Wiz- doing the research for
2: this episode, it was like a Wizard and the Bruiser All-Stars episode. Because... I was always like, kind of just like, oh, Transformers are kind of weird. There's like uh, this fandom online that takes itself very seriously um, that provided that ended up being a huge resource for research for this episode. Thank you so much. Uh, weirdos who take yourselves too seriously. Really coming in on the clutch there. Um, I say eradicate them. Holden <laughs> McNeely says, get rid of the weirdos
1: who take things too seriously. You're almost
2: a Kennedy, and it's. I love this Like As weird-
1: I apply to be the mayor, I will say this to the people of this country and the people of this tiny town known as Manhattan. We must get rid of the weirdos who love things. That's right. Now I'm turning into Jerry Seinfeld. It's, and you can't even understand.
2: Reel it in, I beg of you.
1: You got to <laughs> reel it in, buddy. I'm on fire today, Jake. I am ready <laughs> to talk about Transformers for the next hour plus or whatever we can do about it. I yeah, what how, where do we even begin? I'll tell you where we begin. Right here in a little-known Japanese toy company called takara co limited jake before the episode i literally went like do you know how this all works out with the different with the microman and the <laughs> diaclone <laughs> okay. and the all it is so much going on here it's with a these lot japanese to figure out the lineage for transformers is long and storied it is not simple stuff here we're talking about one would think like oh just robots that like transform from like cool looking robot action figure dudes to like cars and different things cassette players like that seems like a pretty like you know you would think one guy named just like joe dale in fuck- in colorado oh, okay. was oh, sitting God. in his garage no. and was like Ugh. i see it, i look at my car i call it bumblebee and now it and then i thought what if car was man there's what if car was robot like, man but that is not what happened you're ki- i mean you're kind of you're so close
2: to right. It's kind of weird. <laughs> all right, so let's okay. So let's break it down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, first of all, there's two separate toy companies. Yes. Uh, there's Takara, and then there's the Hasbro. Yes. And uh, let's start with Takara though, right? Because okay.
1: Takara is like the OG. Takara created. Well, I mean, okay. Well, well, well get no, no, no. Yeah, it's not the OG, but I, I'm just saying it's. They literally use the models for Hasbro just took what Takara did and just like rebranded it and made it for Americans. So that's is, why we're going to start with Takara. This is how fucked
2: up it is. All right. It's okay. No, you know what? All right. Let's talk about Takara, the plucky Japanese company that was like, what if we molded plastic into dumb shapes? Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
1: They created Microman, right? Mm hmm. Takara was originally Tomiyama founded in 1924. It goes that back that far and they uh started man- manufacturing these toys called microman from 1974 to 1984. uh these were 3.75 inch action figures with vehicles robots playsets, and accessories they were marketed as being the actual size of cyborg beings called micros that hailed from a fictional planet known as Micro Earth and disguised themselves as action figures while on planet Earth. They are known for their high number of articulation points relative to other toys in similar size scale in the 1970s. If you remember back toys back then, they didn't have the bendy arms. They didn't have they didn't have joints. A lot of the toys back then they were more like doll-like. They were more like you know they they just sort of stood straight and you couldn't really cut like kind of move them around and hell I don't know maybe like create action with them. You know what I mean?
2: Okay, so I'm gonna try and and double up on this because this is I, I've been obsessed with how all this relates. So yes, uh, Takara, Japanese company, uh, in 1955 they successfully secured the Barbie license in America. So in the 50s didn't even know that. They managed to get dolls. And fashion dolls, I mean, it is crack cocaine for little kids. Uh, Mattel was uh, the original creator of that in America, where they stole a design from, like, a German doll, and it's that has, like, a complicated thing. But, like, you know, uh, this this idealized figure that kids can project themselves onto. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1960, they, this is still Takara, had their own um, original character called Dako-chan, Again. which was its own, like, weird kind of... Almost like a fidget spinner kind of fad where fashionable women would uh, take Dako-chan, which was this uh, inflatable vinyl figure, and he would latch onto their arms and using like a little lenticular sticker, you know, those little things with the scratchy plastic that changes depending on how you look on it, Mm -hmm. he would wink at you. Oh. Um, also super key, Daco-chan is one of the most racist fucking things you could ever imagine. It makes Mr. Popo look like Teneshi Coates. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. Um, but that was another success. And so they're hitting their stride as a toy maker where they're just kind of latching onto fads and getting kids excited about these like products that they're making, usually made out of plastic. Um, in 1970, they licensed G.I. Joe from Hasbro. Now, Hasbro, let's go to Hasbro, uh, started in, like, the 1800s by three Polish-Jewish immigrants in Rhode Island.
1: Yes, Hasbro started by Herman Hillel and Henry Hassenfeld. Uh, it was uh, – uh, this- Has,
2: Hassenfeld, bro, brothers.
1: Yes. Hasbro. They sold uh, textile remnants, which scraps Sc- like that's such a b- American
2: scraps. Polish immigrant like they- fabric scraps. Who wants to
1: buy fabric you could, scraps? You could make a boy out of it, or you could make a a, a, a door out of it, or Huddling could- them for warmth. This is fabric <laughs> scraps. I tried to make gun with it, but gun not fires. so you can make door with it.
2: They eventually start uh, selling, like, little knickknacks, like pencil boxes. Pencils
1: are their big thing, right? Yeah. Pencils are their big, and which Stationary. actually, sp- that actually turned into Empire Pencil, which was, like, another subsidiary of theirs. Where- the point
2: is they get good at making stuff out of plastic. Mm-hmm. And, again, this is still, like, new technology. Uh, so Hasbro making plastic knickknacks. Uh, Takara making plastic knickknacks.
1: And before, honestly, actually, though, before they... So they start making toys in 42, right? Mm-hmm. But their first toys are modeling clay and doctor and nurse kits. So that's kind of their first foray. the 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 first big toy hit they have wasn't plastic. It was... Mr. Potato Head the potato. jacket pieces of metal that you yes. stick in a potato. Yes, there was uh, they purchased that uh, Mr. Potato Head from a Brooklyn-born toy inventor named George Lerner in 1952. The it was the first toy and this is actually very important for the Hasbro history that'll lead into Transformers. Did you know that Mr. Potato Head was the very first toy advertised on television? Mm. And the campaign was the first marketed to kids. It was so. This is actually which makes so much sense for where they would end up with Transformers, right? Um, and then in 1954, the company became a Disney major license, and now, now uh, back to you, Jake. Now we're okay. now we're up to date. So um, just had to get that Mr. Potato Head thing in there. Which, by the way, just to, just so so you know, it wasn't like a plastic potato. Uh, uh like Back in the day today, yeah. It was just like You got all of the little things To stick into an actual potato Later kids started coming with a potato Because but at the first, sharp metal just...
2: pieces Kids were kind of stabbing themselves with Which if you look at the history of Hasbro They've had issues There's a lot of stuff like that With kids stabbing themselves There's a lot of map. stuff It
1: kind of reminds me of that SNL sketch From back in the day yeah. With uh, um, uh, Dan Aykroyd Where he's like Yeah it's a
2: bag of glass <laughs> exactly. You know <laughs> that for a reason The Christmas toys um, So uh, So Again, we're we're talking on both on two sides of the of the planet right now. And uh in the sixties, Hasbro has a major innovation when they introduced G.I. Joe. Uh, because they, major innovation. they realize that like the idea you know, they're copying Mattel, which killed it with Barbie, and they're like, Well, boys are also dumb children. They need like a heroic figure to project themselves on. Mm-hmm. So they don't make a doll, they make what they have coined the action figure.
1: Yes, that's the thing. It was never action figure before that because they were like, boys don't want to play with dolls. Mm-hmm. But the
2: fact is, like, if you've ever, I don't, do we need to go into the explanation? Action figures are cool. You bump them up against each other. You make them, like, you throw them at shit. They're, they're just like these little superheroes that you can, like, have imagination adventures
1: And with. then late at night, you sort of make them maybe have sex with each other to sort of understand and explore what's going on with your personal identity sexually.
2: Not m- my jam, but good for you. Um <laughs>
1: In can the '70s, okay. So in can we talk s- about the speaking of the band toys, the javelin darts? Oh, okay, well, okay, 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 t- okay, <laughs> okay. We're, we're getting to, into we'll this. Get, we'll get to that. Um, okay, I'm uh, almost,
2: I'm almost there. I so squirt, <laughs> uh, back to Japan. Takara licenses GI Joe from Hasbro, wanting to replicate the success of the American toy line. They call theirs Combat Joe, and it be kind of, it kind of spins off into its own individual. Uh, uh, line where it's very focused on like military accuracy you can still find like combat joe figures and they have like perfect world war ii uniforms Mm -hmm. um that during that same time in the 70s vietnam happens and hasbro is kind of in a crisis because kids are you know the military isn't cool right now in the middle of vietnam so they kind of try and make gi joe this like action like adventurer sports guy he's like he's a mountain climber he doesn't he doesn't know what the uh, the viet Cong, my lie what who cares it's gi joe he likes um paragliding <laughs> <laughs> also they have unfortunate uh incidences with lawn darts
1: they get some rough years in the seventies uh, hypnos- with
2: the squirt
1: The squirt is a hypodermic needle-shaped water gun, and the press tagged it as a junior junkie <laughs> kit. What on earth were they thinking? I mean, the lawn dart thing I kind of get because lawn darts were at one point um, a thing mm-hmm. until it started. They started uh, killing people. Uh <laughs> so they've discontinued yeah. remember like lawn darts aren't a thing anymore. No. They're not like bocce ball. You don't go to a bar in Williamsburg and like people throw in lawn Although if darts. Although they did,
2: you would have a very popular bar. I'm just going to say that right now. Yeah, actually, um
1: would.
2: so while Hasbro is floundering, Takara is actually doing some really amazing things because with the Combat Joe line, they create a cy- they like do a spin-off Combat Joe where it's a Cyborg Henchin, which is this like Plast, clear plastic robot G.I. Joe. And that becomes super popular. But they run into an issue. Japanese households aren't really built for giant
1: toy collections. A lot of them are usually very compact and space is at a premium. Space is a big deal with the Japanese. They have tiny, compact, sort of uh, compartmentalized uh, housing and everything. And they, they space is a huge, huge deal to them. So
2: they release Micro Man, which is, as you said, the small... Uh, what's the three and point seven five inches? It's they uh, were yes. Three point seven
1: five inches. Yes.
2: Uh, they were smaller. They were easier to produce. The pieces were assembled in a way that you could just if you bought a bunch of them, you could like pick them apart and remake them. I'll, and
1: I'll say these two words again. Articulation points. Very important. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and um, they were small enough that you could buy vehicles and play sets for them. That wouldn't take up too much space so you could like you know the accessories market once you had them with the toys you could get their little cars and their little spaceships um another toy company actually tried to bring micro man to the west that was called migo or miko i can't remember migo i believe Yeah,
1: i believe it was Migos, which Um, later of course became the don't um, you dare (laughs) (laughs) does
2: savage 21 have something to do with this too what's this guy um so Twenty one seven
1: fuck I'm old. Wow. I'm old. What a gaff. What I'm a, a gaff. Old broken man. I know what Migos is. Just throw it out there. I know what Migos you're a, is.
2: You're a cool boy. Um <laughs> that doesn't go so well because they didn't do enough to adapt the, you know, it's micronauts is what they ended up were called yes. in um, in the West. But in nineteen eighty, a new CEO of Hasbro takes charge. This is a guy named Stephen D. Hassenfeld? Hassenfeld? Hassenfeld, we'll go with Hassenfeld. Uh he basically turns the entire company around by taking the flag- the flagging G.I. Joe franchise and kind of taking what they did with Micronauts and shrinks them down. And, uh, you know, more articulation, you can collect more easily. Uh, they're cheaper on an individual basis, but then that makes it more addictive to buy and you can buy vehicles for them. Well, and specifically, though, are
1: you getting the micro change? We'll get okay, there. okay, we're getting there. I just wanted to make sure you didn't yeah. gloss over the um, specific, specifically micro change.
2: And most importantly, uh, Stephen D. Hassenfeld uh, takes a three-pronged marketing approach for the franchise in which New G.I. Joe has a animated series, a comic book, And the toy line uh, and the tech and they and they use Marvel and its associated company, Marvel Productions, to develop the ideas. If you look into the history of G.I. Joe, which we'll probably cover in an episode, it's actually a lot of concepts blatantly stolen from Jack Kirby, including a lot of stuff from like S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA. And all this kind of stuff the serpent society there's a lot it of was Jack specifically
1: Herbie like stuff. a nick fury i think the spin-off yeah. thing that they completely just took oh well and apparently also this came from uh the marvel editor-in-chief jim shooter which we have talked about multiple times on this show uh and at the time he was the first person to kind of take over i believe was he the first person to take it either way the marvel editor-in-chief jim shooter claims uh, the president of Hasbro and Marvel met at a charity event in the bathroom. They were taking a piss next to each other, and they started discussing reactivating the G.I. Joe trademarks. That's how they kind of got into bed with each other. Taking a piss! So,
2: eager for another hit, having seen the success that uh, they had with the G.I. Joe revamp, they need another toy line. And they go to the Tokyo Toy Fair in 1982 looking for the next big thing. And what they find is that Microman has two different spin-off lines that are going bananas mm-hmm. in Japan both the both are based on the idea that they're seemingly common objects that can change
1: into a robotic form. Are you talking about Microchange and Diaclone?
2: I'm talking about Microchange and Diaclone, okay. which were two different lines.
1: Diaclone launched in uh, 1980. Microchange was a subsidiary of Micro Man. So it was in the Micro Man toy line, and it is toys like ordinary items uh, such as cassette set tapes, a microscope, uh, watches, and even guns. That could change in other forms to help microman. Diaclone, though, is totally separate. Transforming vehicles and robots piloted by miniature magnet figures. These were also microman. From the prior microman line, uh that were in turn uh called an Inch Man. Um and uh these were designed by Shoji Kawamori and Kazutaka Miyatake, who would go on to do Macross. So uh, definitely, like like uh, pro mech people. And um, in 1982, they rolled out car robots invented by Ono Kojin, uh, with some help from Kawamori, the Macross guy.
2: Oh, that's weird. I got a different. I, I have two other names.
1: I have so I'm. There's a please, lot of Japanese. Names. Throw it all in beca- to the pot because there's a lot here, and I feel like it's just everything. It's so much happening. There's so many different hands. So already we're talking about who. So who are your names? Uh.
2: <laughs> this is this almost gave me a migraine when I covered it. Uh the Diaclone and uh, Microchange designers uh were guys named Nobuyuki Okude and Hideaki Yoke. So might as well, I should. so like the English equivalent should probably just be like, you know, John Simpson and Jeff Sampson. <laughs> It's not. It's easy. Simpson and Samson. Back Hideaki to and kids. Nobuyuki. It's, why, why are you having trouble keeping them apart? Um, <laughs> Nobuyuki tested early diaclone concepts with his own eight year old son and realized that kids were more drawn to real sports cars and supercars and fighter jets and these like true like, you know, objects that they associated with like real life power and dynamism more so than actually playing with the robots and And so what the Diaclone line did was rather than just kind of being uh, a robot that can kind of turn into just a shitty looking thing with four wheels, the core design was based on making sure that the cars were realistic looking and, you know, function primarily as cars. And then through like the secret information of knowing what twists where a robot like guy can emerge from it. Micro change was a separate line where because, like, if you remember the Microman uh, uh, line, the cyborgs were supposed to be real, You know, they were supposed to actually be that small. They weren't representations of larger characters. So the idea was that, of course, a Walkman could turn into a robot and fight them because they were already little guys. Right. Um, and this is what was crazy. I never even really thought about this. Right. In the original Transformers dolls, action figures please transforming robot approximations <laughs>
1: badass things that uh plastic
2: they are full of Cavities and cockpits and seats available yeah. for these microman figures that just no... never never apply. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the original. Sorry, I bumped my mic. If you look at the original. <laughs> Opti- you're just
1: so excited right now. <laughs>
2: if you look at the original Optimus Prime, he comes with this little like <laughs> scouter drone that they kind of. I forgot what his official That's
1: right. He comes I, th- with I this know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. With
2: these like ridges that made no sense. Yeah. Unless. They were the fucking seats for the Little Inch guys that were supposed to ride with him, but just didn't come in the box. Um, So at 1982 Toy Fair, the Hasbro execs find these two lines and are like, oh, these are amazing. Not even realizing that, like, the granddaddy of these toys was their own property, G.I. Joe, which is weird. Like, that's, they were looking for the follow-up to G.I. Joe and found, like, the weird Galapagos mutated like
1: descendant of GI Joe, and we're like, "This is amazing!" Right, which is incredible to me. Now I got to add one more key player into this whole situation that gave that gave us Transformers. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know who that is? Ronald Reagan. Go on. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad. Actually, I forgot. Yeah, I'm glad you're getting into this. So, at the very same time that all of this is going down with G.I. Joe and Transformers, this is a little, you know, this is like more in the G.I. Joe area of history. He-Man.
2: He-Man was a big deal in in the era you're talking about.
1: Right around this time, Ronald Reagan, along with FCC Chairman Mark Fowler, deregulates various restrictions on the media there was this big deregulation thing going all across the media big push by reagan and this included prohibiting children's television to promote products that's why you kind of have like children's television like pre he-man gi joe transformers and like post Mm -hmm. right i mean it's completely two different things and you know i was even visiting um a friend of mine who has kids uh, not too long ago and with a couple of friends and the friends were commenting on how like you can't even tell anymore what's a commercial (laughs) and what's the actual TV show. Like the commercials are just made to be, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, marketing for kids is – like, so much more, you know, manipulative and, you know, uh, I mean, just just right there for you. I mean, you're just, it's a gold mine these people had to tap into, and Hasbro was fucking on it, man. Like, the moment that shit got deregulated, because th- there was a time in this world where you couldn't just se- make a TV show to sell action figures, you know? Um, a completely different time, you know? Almost and, as if
2: they had an awareness that children's minds were malleable, and to just <laughs> fill them with commercials commercialistic capitalist drivel would break them and may turn them into just weird drones
1: these it would turn them into these weirdos who care too much about things and i will eradicate i will say (laughs) more more
2: years (laughs) we'll throw
1: them niagara falls we'll just toss them over the side if they we'll put them in a barrel if they survive then we will let them live so hasbro
2: teams up with takara and says we're bringing transformers to america or I'm sorry, we're bringing Diaclone and Microchange to America, but we're getting rid of the Microman thing because Miko already Migo already had Micronauts and we can't use those, so they're just going to be united into a brand new line. And we're going to steal our playbook from from uh, GI Joe, and we're going to work with Marvel again to give them a backstory and a cartoon series and a comic book to help sell the 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 reality that we're bringing to these toys.
1: And, and of course, GI Joe gets this big reboot using Marvel. So Hasbro immediately says, picks up the phone, calls up probably Jim shooter Mm -hmm. and says after, you know, Hey, remember GI Joe, we got a new one for you. So GI Joe, what they did. um, They had like a a short mini series, I believe um, for GI Joe And, uh, uh, I don't know if they had a full on TV show, TV show at this point, but either way, uh, Jim Shooter and writer Dennis O'Neill come, uh, get together and come up with the story, uh, for, for, uh, Transformers, the initial story. This is an, uh,
2: this is a legendary eight page document that you can find online, Hmm. um, Denny, o- wait. Are you going to talk about how Denny O'Neill, like his treatment, actually didn't get very far?
1: Yes, I was going to talk about that. I was going to give a little backstory to Dennis O'Neill. Dennis O'Neill in the '60s, he was in the Navy. After that, he ends up taking a job with the newspaper in Missouri, um, and he starts writing articles about the revival of the comics industry, which attacks the, attracts the attention of Roy Thomas, who would go on to take over for Stan Lee as editor in chief at Marvel.
2: Who later, Roy the boy, as we mentioned in our, Roy story. the
1: boy, exactly. Stan the man, Roy the boy. So he, Roy Thomas later gets uh gets him to take that writer's test i talked about now dennis o'neill has he's literally like as he puts it he did the test as kind of a joke the writer's test by the way it is a four page excerpt from a jack kirby fantastic four comic book that was the old writer's test they used to make writers take in order to see if they could hire them He said he did the test as kind of a joke. I had a couple of hours on a Tuesday afternoon, so instead of doing crossword puzzles, I did the writer's test, and he gets hired. He ends up bouncing around from Marvel to Charlton to DC, but he returns to Marvel in 1980. He is credited as the person who named Optimus Prime, but for his treatment um, that he made, Hasbro requests heavy revisions on his work. And he declines this. Do you have more to elaborate on this? Well,
2: Denny O'Neill, uh, I think one of his biggest uh, uh, landmark works uh, ended up being the Green Arrow, Green Lantern um, uh, crossover comic that famously had the panel where like, a black man just accosts Green Lantern for being like, you care about the purple man? And the, and the and the green man, but what about the black man, Green Lantern? What do you have to say for yourself? And Green Lantern's just ashamed being like, I fucked up, man. I <laughs> fucked up real bad. I forgot to solve all the injustice in the world. I was too busy fighting Sinestro. <laughs> also the story where uh, Green Arrow's ward, uh, Speedy, uh, is addicted to heroin. So he had this like very socially conscious way about him. Some would call it preachy. Um, Therefore, not a
1: weird fit. For weird... Transformers, does he make a preachy Transformers? Pitch? I don't
2: know. I can't. Okay. Um, there's a that would be amazing. The one thing that
1: does remain is the name for the leader is Optimus Prime. Optimus Prime is a very good name among a
2: few other a few other uh, individual things.
1: Optimus Prime is a very good name for a for a thing. I actually to have, make people excited about a thing.
2: Uh, Jim Shooter ends up making his own eight-page treatment. Uh, I have it actually here. Uh, it's, it's very you know. It actually sets a lot of the scene for what is to come. Uh, This is just the first paragraph. Civil war rages on the planet Cybertron. Destruction is catastrophic and widespread, and yet no life is lost. None, at least in the sense we know life. For the inhabitants of Cybertron are all machines. There is no life on Cybertron, save for the mechanical, electronic creatures. As mankind is first in the organic denizens of Earth, Intelligent robots are the dominant species on Cybertron. Even the planet itself is one vast mechanical construct. Perhaps there was once a real world upon which Cybertron was built. Uh, And it goes on. It's very lofty. It's very grandiose. Is this the O'Neill... Pitch, no, this is Jim Shooter's original treatment.
1: Okay, this is Jim Shooter's original treatment. Dennis O'Neill uh uh refuses to make revisions on on his work. That's when Bob Budiansky comes in.
2: Now, Jim needs so Jim has his treatment, he has this like rough world building thing. He you know lays out that like okay, the car ones are good guys because everyone likes cars, the ones that are like they look like normal stuff, but they're actually. Other stuff. That's like that's a betrayal. That's evil. That so they're Decepticons. They're ah. deceptiony. Um, and with this rough treatment, he goes around to the writer's bullpen and is like, "Hey, can anyone take care of this? It's kind of a big deal." Unfortunately, like, get fucked, shooter. It's the weekend before Thanksgiving, and ah. nobody wants to work. <laughs> and so it comes down to one of the uh, lesser editors, Bob Budiansky who basically signed on to be an artist and just, Mm -hmm. like, could barely hack it because of the
1: workload. Early in his career, he worked on Ghost Rider, actually, before uh, getting (coughs) Transformers. Whatever. Whatever.
2: Um, And Bob talks about this whirlwind, like, weekend where he just, like, spent the entire time, uh, you know, just looking at the individual
1: toys and just coming up with personalities for them all. He conceives of the names Megatron, Ratchet, and Ravage. So Uh, just
2: imagine that weekend where, like... He's just, like, looking at this chunk of uh, plastic and metal being like, uh, it's a fucking ambulance, ambulance, uh, hospital, hospital, uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, uh, <laughs> nurse Ratchet, Ratchet, his name's Ratchet. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. So Ratchet comes from nurse Ratchet. Uh, it's Ratched. a sports
2: card. it's cool, what's he cool, what's a cool, black guy, what's a black guy, It's jazz, jazz, his name's jazz.
1: <laughs> Shockwave's personality traits come from Mr. Spock. He used a lot of pop culture references, and he also wrote the vast majority of the descriptive tech spec biographies printed on the Transformer toy packages as well. They at the end of this, they now have their full kind of treatment for um, now. Now, what do they have at this point? Do they have a full treatment for a cartoon show and a comic book and a toy line? Is that what they have, or they or have they the, have an overview of just the basic general, you know, characters? So they have the and, toy
2: line and the ca- so they have the flavor text and the setting for the toys, and they start using so. They send that off, and that's what ends up on the toy boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're all working from a central uh, premise, they uh, begin work on the comic book miniseries. And that is uh, basically note for note um, what is laid out in the early uh, text documents. Um, Do
1: shall we? Okay. Before we get into the TV series, shall we talk a little bit about just the toys? Um, Do you want to chat about that? Let's. Yeah, you know what? Let's do it. Let's talk about Series 1, okay? We've got 28... 28- I'm sorry, G1? Okay, all of this falls under the Generation 1 banner. Mm-hmm. This is Series 1 of of the toy line. There are going to be two series of toys because mm-hmm. as you... Uh, what you have to understand is I learned a lot actually about how, you, you know, the, the way people make choices about cartoons for children that are literally there to sell toys... Are all, you know, you have to understand like every choice that they make in the show is because they need to push more product. Right. So the first series um, is going to be centered around more like that first batch of episodes, but then they immediately need to say, like, Oh, and then at the very end, we're going to unleash this, like, badass shit of, you know, uh, a handful of new robots so that the kids will be like, that's exactly what I need. Kind of like, you know, I would liken it to, like, the White Power Ranger, right? Mm -hmm. It's like they have to keep introducing new characters and new, you know, forces of good and evil specifically to introduce them to the store shelves. And to
2: highlight each
1: one to make them appealing for the kids. So, in fact, the, the ones that they introduce at first are actually kind of like fucking them later because the kids aren't going to go buy the toy they already ha- you know like they, they they you know they can't they can only sell one Optimus Prime, right? You know to each kid.
2: Th- yeah. This is when we get to the movie. That's when that's going to That's when gonna we're buy. really
1: going to get into it. But either way,
2: I'm still obsessed with the Bob Budiansky over the course of a single week and being like, "Ah, uh, but okay, he's yellow. He's a VW bug, yellow bug, yellow bu- B uh, Bumblebee. This fucker's Bumblebee. All right, I next would, one."
1: I would I would not turn that job down i would have so much fun with them. like like can you imagine you and me sitting down with a bunch of japanese toys and coming up with like american storylines for them and character names that would be so much uh, fun. this
2: cassette tape he turns into a bird He's has fucking got a gun he's a gun bird gun bla- laser laser bird laser beak this one's fucking laser beak <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, He hates his dad! I don't know! Fuck, there's so many of these!
1: (laughs) (laughs) He hates his dad. Alright, so, there are 28 characters total. 18 Autobots, 10 Decepticons. Here are the Autobots. 11 of them, uh, of which, turned into cars. You've got Blue Streak, Hound, Ironhide, Jazz, Mirage, Prowl, Ratchet, Sideswipe, Sunstreaker, Trailbreaker, and Wheeljack. The ones I remember the best are probably... Jazz, I remember. I remember um the mini cars. You've got Braun, Bumblebee, Cliff Jumper, Gears, Huffer, and Wind Charger. Bumblebee, of course. What made Bumblebee so fucking iconic? And then of course, one one Autobot turned into a tractor, trailer, truck, and that would be Optimus Prime. Why was but why does why is Bumblebee such a big deal? Because it uh, was to me.
2: The yellow bug is like a fun car. It's like just a, it's you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a race car, it wasn't an a uh, police car. It was just this like you know, Herbie the Love Bug kind of guy,
1: right? Uh, in the car. That's probably a lot of why it did really well because of Herbie the Love Bug. He was also one of the
2: easier ones to figure out. He would like change very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: small, very compact, very yeah. tiny. Probably one of the cheaper ones you could pick up as well. Uh, so then you have the Decepticons three turned into planes you've got Skywarp Starscream and Thundercracker I remember definitely um, Starscream
2: well yeah you can't we'll, we'll talk
1: about Starscream. and um, we haven't talked about our personal relationship with this by the way when do you I don't know maybe when we're done talking about the toys before we move into the TV show we can talk about uh, a little bit of that five turned into micro cassettes Buzzsaw, frenzy laser beak ravage and rumble and then one turned into a microset recorder and that would be Soundwave I do remember Soundwave the micros- was fucking
2: the I just the design for Ravage was so fucking cool the way that he unfolded into this like metal and like black plastic just fuck beast was <laughs> I re, the micro cassettes were really do my favorite do you think
1: Ravage fucked
2: I mean I'm sure he like digitally replicated himself if Transformers <laughs> can fuck Ravage fucked <laughs>
1: Uh, And then, of course, one turned into a gun, and that would be Megatron.
2: Oh, now, oh, okay, did you, so, uh, the Megatron, Megatron was, uh, I believe, the first incarnation as the uh, micro change was uh, Gun
1: Robo. Yeah, if you look up, okay, so, the one-to-one, I was gonna write down. Megatron
2: that we uh, know and love was a very specific one, which was the Walter P-34. Eight, I believe?
1: Yeah. Maybe. Uh, maybe.
2: Uh, it's the Man the, From the, Uncle. Yeah, it was the Man From Uncle edition, which came with an extra scope and a stock that could like transform into its own little gun platform. But it was specifically... Yeah, the man from uncle tie in gun what that we was, now know as men. Now,
1: I'd like to say I like know what the man from uncle really was, but I think that was a much more popular thing in its time. What kind of a sh- do you know what that it was?
2: Uh, it was kind of a swinging British spy show. Okay. Uh, secret agents and stuff. Uh, the Walter PPK is James Bond's famous gun. It's that stubby little pistol. You just said PP. Thank you. <laughs> um,
1: I'm just trying to derail the show at all costs.
2: So like it was this iconic little spy gun yeah. that was the perfect size for becoming a handheld child's toy. Um, and like if you look at the original fucking thing, no little orange tip on those guys. No like markings, no like weird neon paint. Like it was just a very accurate gun gun. <laughs> That little kids could run around with their in their hands.
1: Yeah, which made it um, um, uh, illegal for you to take onto an airplane. Uh, you couldn't travel with it into Australia. You could get it in Australia, but you couldn't travel to Australia with it for some reason because uh, it looked like a fucking gun and it was, and there, it would set off metal detectors right it's pretty crazy uh, also with this first line of toys to save production costs and developing separate chassis for multiple toys many of the G1 Transformers Generation 1 Transformers are simply repainted or reaccessorized clones of one another by the way when all we the say, jets we just mentioned when we say Generation 1 we're talking about like everything that essentially happened in the 80s mm-hmm. Generation 2 is everything that happened in the 90s 90s and onward i don't think the bay movies are necessarily generation three oh, it's well there but whatever it's still Generation. when when we refer transformers
2: themselves re-released the original 80s cartoon in the early 90s um to promote the new the newer toy lines and re-releases they were doing and they called it transformers generation two pr- like basically retroactively calling it generation one if Uh, If we end up getting into Beast Wars, there's like a whole handover when Takara and Hasbro kind of like pass the torch to the Kenner division Mm. and they create Beast Wars, which is its own own sideline. It's it's Mm -hmm. it's complicated.
1: By the way, that's what I call it when I make love. What do you call it? Beast Wars. That's horrifying. Optimus Prime. uh, uh, This is what I was going to say, too. Also, uh, just to give you an idea of like what the Japanese name was to the American name. The Japanese name was always very technical with a lot of like, it's very like kind of gun to me in that sense. Like it's just a lot of letters and numbers thrown together seemingly just sort of to classify each one to make them sound very like technical and robotic. So Optimus Prime was simply Battle Convoy. Um, Bumblebee was the MC-04 Mini Car Robo-03 Volkswagen Beetle. Mm -hmm. That was like the name of the product in Japan. Just to give you an idea. The the original
2: Diet Clones were more, they were named after basically the car, not the, the character of the robot
1: exactly exactly so anyways uh now we move on to series two uh series two uh along with the reissue of season one all of those first uh toys uh series one rather um come 76 new toys that's a lot 76 new toys and we're gonna have to see that and they're gonna have to push this product in the tv show correct mm-hmm. so um uh, they introduced Dinobots, Omnibots, Constructicons, and Insecticons. Uh, we're going to get an, actually introduced to them in that first season of the show, which we'll kind of come back to. I know that the Constructicons, which all form to make one big monster. Are Was kind it of,
2: Devastator?
1: Yeah, I believe it's Devastator. Like, they are in the like final, finale climax episode of season one of the cartoon, right? And again, just to make kids go holy shit, I gotta get that fucking thing. And I think that somebody, I know that you put the call out on Twitter and I was reading a little bit of it. And I know one person said it was just like, you would see something on TV and then you'd get the toy and it actually kind of like worked like it actually looked on TV. And I think that that was such a big part of the draw for Transformers was that they were actually a um, satisfying toy once you got it home they weren't like oh this isn't really like yeah what i saw which was the majority of stuff i I, I hearken see.
2: back to the janky dr grant that i got for my birthday uh that wasn't quite a perfect sam Neil replication
1: so speaking of uh, our personal situation before we get into the transformers tv show i just briefly wanted to talk about what the transformers were for me mm-hmm. right uh i would say that this was like my brother's thing. Right. It's like, definitely an 80s thing. Right. And, and you know, what, 84 when the TV show. Yeah. 84 is when the TV show hits. I'm two years old. Yeah. But I do remember, like, my earliest, earliest memories of Saturday morning cartoons of, like, being on the couch with my brother, having cereal, and sort of, like, watching his show, which was Transformers you know, and maybe Thundercats and stuff like that, but especially, like, um, Transformers, Mm -hmm. you know, was kind of his thing. He had Optimus Prime. He had the Transformers and the G.I. Joes. And I had other, like, my thing was more like Ninja Turtles and stuff like that, right? So I kind of have a a deep memory of that, right? I remember the movie that we're going to get into in just a little bit and how fucking dark and weird it is. And I remember, you know, just, like, super vague, like, I remember I really think the packaging was really smart for Transformers that grid mm-hmm. it just it was just so there the logo the you know everything was that just was so That was the Micro
2: Change line had that art style. Okay. The Diaclone line kind of had a different uh, uh aesthetic to it but they helped they brought that over when they made Transformers. It was
1: so 80s and it was so for some reason just pleasing to the eye in terms of like a boys like fun fucking toy to play with you know Mm -hmm. just even the packaging and just the look of of everything you know and that just like whenever i hear the word transformers i just think more than meets the eye like it just it just happens it's just it's just so fucking like realized perfect for like this thing that that kids would want um but anyways do you have like and and i do oh also though i do remember later on just because of how cool they fucking looked like i always wanted um one of the uh what are they the uh uh, dinobots yeah Yeah. so i got like the t-rex a later probably during maybe during the beast wars era probably this, this probably happened but i went and got a dinobot and like had so much fun with it just like transforming it and playing with it i also had a megatron um the tank uh, version. The tank one. Did you have that one? I didn't have that one, but I, I. By the
2: time I was playing with Transformers, you couldn't really get the gun Megatron.
1: in Yeah, right. You had it was the tank one, and it was so cool. I really dug it. Yeah, no, they but- were
2: satisfying toys. Uh, one thing I'm especially uh, remembering is uh, there's a Japanese uh, one of the Japanese guys Hideaki Yoke who actually uh, was the liaison between Takara and Hasbro and worked with the line up until his retirement in 2015, talked about the uh, kind of bizarre tension between American and Japanese toy manufacturers where the ja- uh, the Americans always wanted to make sure the bottom line was as cheap as possible. They wanted to just like, who cares? These are kids that are going to play with it. Just make it as cheap as possible. While the there was a level of kind of like craftsmanship and and pride that the takara company took in their uh creations where it was like rear real rubber on the wheels of optimus prime and like die cast metal pieces in the toys and that increases weight and production costs and all that and so when you picked up like an original g1 transformer there was like a heft to it mm-hmm. like um all the yes. moving parts had to like fit together, you know. Optimus
1: Prime had that prime had that feeling of chrome. Fit and
2: finish is the word that people use when talking about cars and electronics. And yeah. the Transformers had amazing fit and
1: finish. Absolutely. So, so now it's 1984. Uh, U.S. regulators have removed many of the restrictions, as we talked about before, on um, promotional content within children's television programming. You've got GI Joe already super successful with their three pronged marketing comp- campaign with the toy line, tie-in comic, and animated miniseries. Also, by the way, I, ha- I still have a few GI Joe and Transformer comic books from like what my brother had oh, uh, in, in like a drawer somewhere um, back in back in uh, back in North Carolina, and I remember like fondly enjoying the. Like, I only have, like, a couple issues, but I remember enjoying those. But anyways, G.I. Joe's going strong um, with their animated miniseries co-produced by Marvel as well as Sunbow, Productions. Sunbow Productions is from the Griffin Bala Advertising Agency. It was founded by them in 1978. to
2: exploit the loophole that just opened up so exactly. that they could turn commercials into cartoons.
1: Exactly. Uh, in 1978 they found that one of their first clients is Hasbro and they did animated commercials for G.I. Joe. Now those commercials were so successful that that's what led them to found Sunbow Entertainment and uh, go on to start making television. Now the animation was also initially produced by Toby. Animation and A- Acom, which we have talked about time and time and time again.
2: Uh, this is, I think, part of the key appeal to the animated cartoon is uh, Toei was one of the most story Japanese animation houses um, that worked on films and anime. Uh, one time employer of uh, Hayao Miyazaki, as we talked about in the Miyazaki episode. Yep. And so um, what the original Transformers cartoon was, was all of these concepts And characters and scripts and pacing from these American grandiose hyperbolic uh, comic book writers with the visual execution of the top anime studio at the time. Mm -hmm. So the mixture of like cutting for the you know for an American kid cutting edge visuals along with these like you know broad comic book tropes really like hit the butter zone in terms of like addictive stuff.
1: (laughs) butter zone i want to go to the butter zone it's very so slippery bad. uh
2: they did uh they also sunbo Acom had terrible Acom had less good animation it was founded by like mm. one of the writers specifically because he knew he could like skim some money off of like putting together crappier animation animation right.
1: and sumbo sumbo i mean sumbo not just gi joe not just transformers they do gym they do My Little Pony. And later they actually kind of start getting into more original, like less trying to push toys uh, uh, cartoons with The Tick, most notably. Mm. Uh, uh, Jim, Jim Shooter produces a rough story concept for the series involving two warring factions of alien robots, which we kind of already talked about. And then Japanese designer Shohei Kohara was responsible for creating the earliest character models for the Transformers cast, greatly humanizing the toy designs to create more, a more approachable robot characters for the comic and cartoon. Um, and, there, and was, then oh. there was another guy named Floro Derry <laughs> this guy who simplified these designs and he would go on to create the 1985 models as well as become really just like the lead designer for the entire series well
2: that's a weird thing because okay. Floro Derry got is this me? eccentric uh, Filipino uh, animation artist Fuck who yeah, like uh, in his later in late, on, the, on the beginning of the internet he started like on a one man propaganda campaign to claim that everything about the Transformers was his idea, to the point where he made multiple fake accounts to corroborate his stories and boost his <laughs> uh, profile, and he was discovered as being the originator of those accounts. I believe him. Um, kind of a shady guy. It's <laughs> yeah. If you reference Floro Dairy, uh, it's like kind of like this weird like handshake, n- wink, nod figure within Transformers fandom. Gotcha. Um, he's a character. Gotcha. As we say. Um, so one of the Uh, also one of the so uh, the writing team uh, is mostly freelancers Uh, one of the more prolific creators is a man named David Wise who we will uh, who hopefully you remember in our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles episode as one of the uh, as basically the head writer head creative of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated series so he just owns your childhood there's just no no way around it Um, and this is this is important I feel like what really made Transformers over the edge was the voice cast, the voice acting. Mm. Um The uh, voice director was- Which
1: is ma- fucking nanners in the movie, but yes, for the TV show. Uh,
2: the voice director was a man named Wally Burr, who was a legendary figure within uh voice acting communities. He was known for being a hyper-perfectionist, pushing actors harder than any other voice director would. Uh, there was a stipulation that- a voice acting session could only last up to eight hours, and Wally would make all of his sessions last eight hours. Oh wow! Um, which, if you've ever done voice acting, like sometimes you just kind of nail it and move on, right? But he
1: would just like, especially for an '80s cartoon show that's specifically there to push toys on children. Yeah, you know, we're not talking about fucking Gone with the Wind here or anything. Among
2: the uh, among the actors that uh, contributed their talent was. Uh, the Victor it was Victor Caroli, who was the narrator voice and the interstitial voice and is basically if you think of 80s commercial toy commercial voice, it's him. Many millions of years ago on the planet Cybertron, life existed, but not life as we know it today. On the Decepticon side, there was uh, Chris Lada, who did the iconic Starscream. And uh, just, you know, that sniveling, like, ah, Megatron, no, I would never betray you. I'm sorry. I'm going to betray you. I'm Star Scream. I'm doing a terrible you're
1: job. Very, no, I was about to say you're doing very good. I it's just something. very, it's, it, again. This is my Starscream impression. I'm Starscream. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy for you, <laughs> Megatron. Uh Let me paint the rap. It's Megatron. (laughs) This is my Optimus Prime impression. I can't believe I'm Optimus Prime. I'm so excited to make so much money. I didn't know Optimus Prime was the lead singer of Primus. (laughs) I guess it makes sense (laughs) now. Less playful, huh? You got less playful, that. that's awesome. Um, Uh, Yeah, anyways. uh, Back to all seriousness. Voice acting (laughs)
2: living legend Frank Welker Mm. uh, did the voice of Megatron. And uh, you'll—he's the voice of Fred from Scooby Doo. All the animals—it's—I can't even. We'll do a Frank Welker episode. Is Casey Kasem in this? No. Okay. Um, maybe at some point he shows up. I'm not sure. Yes,
1: he shows up in the movie voice acting, and he was actually—but he was doing like he was the voice of Shaggy. Yeah, yeah. Which I did not realize. What? I did not know that.
2: Oh, now you can't unhear it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um,
2: he also did the vocoder voice of Soundwave. <laughs> Prepare for flight destination iacons but the crux of the show was peter cullen as the voice of optimus prime yes and uh peter cullen uh you know ended up uh doing a bunch of like minor voice acting he was just a guy in la and he has told this story multiple multiple times about his uh when he got the call to audition for the role. Just, you know, again, this was a cheap animated project. He was not. I, I He describes it as like I was supposed to play some kind of hero truck. Like he just <laughs> honestly did not know what to do. But he talks about how he lived with his brother, Larry Cullen, who was a Vietnam vet and uh a year older than him. And he always looked up to his brother, Larry and hmm. Peter Cullen remembers kind of being nervous about the audition and asking his brother, Larry for advice. And Larry just very bluntly told him uh, that if you're going to be a hero, don't be like a hero in the movies, always like shouting and being like, a you know, a superhero about things. That's not how real people, real heroes work. Uh, a real hero is strong enough to be gentle huh and like he said it with wow. the kind of reserved like that's masculinity brilliant. that he always looked up to that like true strength right. wasn't about like pang zoom kapow true strength was your cool brother who was a Vietnam vet
1: yeah and, like Optimus Prime always exuded a wisdom mm-hmm. that just put him in a class above all the other characters in the show
2: that's sure. <laughs> a spark plug Jazz Megatron <laughs> like it's it's yeah it's the voice of Optimus Prime was capable yet caring and compassionate and there's a reason even just the way that the size of Optimus Prime related to the human characters for many people Peter Cullen's voice and the assuredness of Optimus Prime made him a father figure yeah. for countless people watching this show mm-hmm. and I feel like without that characterization that cullen brought to the character we might not even be doing this episode like yeah. the original optimus prime toy is it's well constructed it's cool looking but it needed the it's show. awful to play with yeah bear, like that doesn't move at all <laughs> yeah the arms you the have tires to like, take are kind out of yeah
1: weird they like, get kind of stuck easy and yeah yeah
2: uh that fucking dumb like gas pump thing in his convoy mm-hmm. like it's not that great it's a it's a great design i'm they've done really cool ones uh, what was it? There was like that uh, Optimus Prime PlayStation. I think they yeah, made. Yeah, yeah. That was fucking rad.
1: That was fucking cool. But, but the original, you, need, you toy. had to have the success of the TV show to have to pull, to drive kids to the store. Yeah, there's no other way around it. Like you need the sh- show to be great. I mean, Ninja Turtles for me was the show and then holy shit there's toys like that that's always the success it's never there's toys they should make a show out of this these cool toys like that's not the way it works it almost works.
2: is worse when they come up with the uh, with the show after the thing gets yeah, popular yeah
1: like usually kind of then because it's the same thing as like um the the movie's never going to be as good as the book if you like love the book Mm -hmm. you know i mean it's the same kind of thing right because you're like that's not how i heard those characters because you create by that point you've already created the reality in which they live in in your head and it'll never be as good visually so yeah you kind of need that you need that show first um and that show uh started as a three-part pilot miniseries. first aired in the u.s september 1984 uh, the Autobots and the Decepticons leave their home world of Cybertron for new energy sources. They crash land on Earth. It's, the Autobots oh, no, it's with the dumber
2: help, than that. It's dumber than that. <laughs> it's fucking dumber than that. There's
1: like, there's Sparkplug and Spike uh, Witwicky, that's, the human father son team they that helps fight against on the Earth Decepticons after like clearing an asteroid
2: field, and then like the Decepticons are like chasing them. And they crash on a volcano that's, like, supposed to be Mount St. Helens, but they call it, like, Mount Sam Hillary. It's Why change dumb. it?
1: Why even change It's not that like there's a copyright and like on the mountain.
2: They all die in the crash, but then there's, like, a repair droid that fixes the Decepticons first. But <laughs> then, like,
1: they accidentally bump the mountain as they're leaving. You're saying it's far more convoluted than it needs to be.
2: I'm saying it was written hastily by a bunch of weirdos at the Marvel offices. Get rid of them. Throw them <laughs> off Niagara Falls. We'll put them in a barrel. If they live, they get to live. And ostensibly, the uh, the Decepticons need to find energy sources that they can turn into energon cubes so they can rebuild their ship and escape the planet and, like, I guess come back and fuck with people later. Um, Optimus Prime was, like, this weird not-truck then he's the leader of the resistance. Is uh,
1: is that just the three part miniseries, or are you talking about the full thirteen episodes? The original three part
2: miniseries. the way like how it actually there's like a bomb in a cave, and they it's every it's I can't even <laughs> it's
1: so convoluted. I don't remember any like iconic moment from the show whatsoever. I kind of remember the movie being like weirdly dark. But that's about all I do remember from back in the day. The the, the 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 day
2: is saved at the end of the miniseries because they remember that Mirage, the Transformer, can turn invisible. <laughs> and so just as the Decepticons are about to win, Mirage just kind of shows up and was like, ha, fucker, I was invisible the whole time, and shoots the control panel of their spaceship. That's it's amazing. fucking...
1: Ah! So after the miniseries was even out, uh, or before it was even out, rather, the 13-episode first season was commissioned and produced, uh, and um, they introduced... Uh, this is where they they introduce all of those toys that come out in series two, mm-hmm. right? Because essentially their mouths are watering and they're just like, how many more toys can we? That's why we go from like seventy from like twenty eight to like seventy something. They introduce the Dinobots, the Constructicons, uh, the um, uh, uh, what else? Uh, yeah, and Devastator. The Constructicons come together to make Devastator during this climactic finale with optimus prime and megatron just to like get them all to kind of get more stuff and then and actually the first season i forget what i don't even know what it is but has more of an arc right has a bit more of an arc uh, the to first the first it has, season it is continuity. actually more
2: self-contained because it was so rushed
1: see i thought actually the first season had more of an arc the second season they were like fuck it they all need to be one-offs so that we can uh, uh play them because they literally specifically put out 49 episodes in the second season as opposed to 13 in the first, so they could get that... Daily syndication. The, the magic number is sixty-five episodes required to move the series into weekly broadcast syndication, and then they made them much more one-offy because of that as well, and much more about just like how many can we introduce in every episode? Like we need to get these. We need to move units, baby. We need to move units, and units they fucking moved. This all leads to. We of didn't even
2: course, mention Lord Chumley, the eccentric British lord that wanted to
1: hunt the autobots. I have no. I not in my notes. There's Not Lord him. Chumley. <laughs> this all, of course, culminates with Transformers, the movie. Hit it, Mary. You got the touch. You got the power. That's right. You've got the Transformers movie directed by Nelson Shin. Uh, he was the founder of Acom Productions Co. Limited, the overseas overseas animation of over 200 episodes of The Simpsons, Tiny Toons Adventures, Animaniacs, Batman: The Animated Series. These this this is kind of the outsource company go to company to outsource your animation to get the job done right. I think, um, I don't
2: know if they if Acom becomes First Draft, but like yeah, they were the 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 trailblazers in outsourcing American animation to Korea
1: so Nelson Shin he's at the helm back in the 70s Shin was an animator for De, De Patti Freelang uh, Enterprises this is an, an American animation production company out of Burbank California where he worked on of all things the Pink Panther movies as well as the lightsaber blades in the original Star Wars that's isn't that crazy that's crazy. That's that dude and he directed the Transformers oh and it movie. makes
2: sense because if there's one thing the Transformers is
1: like great at it's all those fucking laser Lasers. effects yeah totally he had a budget of six million dollars and he had the same team that was also at the time working on the TV show this is like in between season two and three of the show there's a hundred people working on it but it, it, even with that big budget and everything they're still on a huge crunch because they're working on multiple things at once they're working on the show and everything and um, they have
2: to get the movie out in time for the toy lines
1: exactly so uh, uh, n- now this is when things get really crazy with the decisions Hasbro needs for Shin to make. All, all of the decisions in Transformers, the movie, essentially all of the ridiculous amounts of character deaths that happen in the movie are all due to Hasbro saying we need to reset the lineup. So that we can sell more new toys. Because like I said earlier, once you have one Optimus Prime, you have Optimus Prime. Mm -hmm. You're good to go. So what we need to do is maybe kill Optimus Prime off so that you say, oh, well, he's dead now. I need to go to the store and get the new... good guy or the new version of optimus prime or whatever it is shin says they created the story hasbro that is using characters that could best be merchandised for the film only with that consideration could i have freedom to change the storyline so he's kind of locked into this situation uh you've got the vice president uh kozo morishita who m- travels to america in order to supervise he's the uh, vice president of toy animation uh he supervises the art direction insisting the transformers themselves be given several layers of shading and shadows to give them more of a dynamic detailed appearance. I mean it looks fucking like there's some good uh,
2: the term for anime nerds is Sakuga Mm. which are like individual shots within an anime or a movie where just the animation budget blows up the frame rate goes up the shading quality goes up i still have nightmares about how fucking radical it was when galvatron just blasted starscream and crunched his fucking weird robot crown
1: so many transformers die in this movie i had here just for a few i have Ironhide. it's br- here's the thing ratchet. not only do they
2: die it's brutal. Yeah. There's like smoke coming out of their faces. There's chunks of them like
1: Proud. throwing on the walls. Brawn. A big one was Starscream. And I still, even with what I just said for the Hasbro's reasoning, I can't believe they kill off Optimus Prime. This That's is, fucking crazy. Were, there
2: was pushback on the decision. There was to, a letter writing campaign. No, that, no, 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 no. no. With, internally. Oh, with the, but, internally. Yeah. Before There that. was a pushback on the decision, uh, but they really wanted to do it because Hasbro had already ...made the gambit by saying that Duke was going to be killed in the G.I. Joe movie. Oh, okay. And so they were going to stick to that decision. Um, the uh, push... the 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 fan reaction... Was so traumatizing with parents being like, You ruined my kid. He was, <laughs> you killed his cartoon dad. Fix my dad. kid.
1: You I'm ki- bringing him into the office. You have to
2: fix you him. You killed his cartoon dad, truck daddy. <laughs> Why did, like, fuck you? That when it came time for the G.I. Joe cartoon to, uh, movie to be released, they actually added the line after Duke died Oh no, he fell into a coma. Yeah. Just to, like, not repeat the same mistake twice.
1: Young Autobot Hot Rod uses the power of the Autobot talisman known as the Matrix of Leadership to become the new Autobot re- leader Rodimus Prime, who I've never heard of, so I'm sure what? it was not a very. You don't successful. remember Rodimus Prime? I don't even really remember Rodimus Prime, uh, who defeats, of course, the world-eating robot planet Unicron. Oh my God! Voiced by Orson Welles, his final. Role. Uh, I think one of my favorite factoids about Transformers is, is that in the Transformers movie, Orson Welles performed his final vo- uh, role ever as an actor. Uh, he literally died five days after his last voice session. Uh, Wells tells there his, is a
2: rumor within the uh, within the voice acting community that it was famous hard ass Wally Burr <laughs> that like pushed <laughs> Orson Welles too hard, and that's why he died.
1: Wells said to his photographer, um, "You know what I did this morning." I played the voice of a toy. I play a planet. I menace somebody called something or other. Then I'm destroyed. My plan to destroy whoever it is is thwarted, and I tear myself apart on screen.
2: <laughs> uh, another good <laughs> voice in that movie is fucking uh, Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy. As Galvatron, mm-hmm. and it is, he is so growly and grizzled. Uh, eventually, it, he Frank Welker takes over for him when they bring the...
1: You've got back. Eric Idle, Judd Nelson, Casey Kasem... Robert Stack, who you know is the host of from Unsolved Mysteries. Scatman Carruthers, another another one who's that was his last role, I believe. He died months after the film's release. Uh, this is like a perfect, like this is like the eighties in a jar, this movie. <laughs> like, also, it's
2: annoying because like they, they're playing like a, like songs, actual like songs throughout the entire movie. Like it's even during like dialogue scenes there's just some song playing it's fucking annoying yeah. you know, like-
1: including if you listen to our Weird Al Yankovic episode Dare to be Stupid uh, we played an yeah. excerpt from actually the Transformers movie that on there uh, the, the, the soundtrack but I mean the, the Stan Bush takes the cake though with the touch and also his song Dare not to be confused with Dare to be Stupid um, and the <laughs> I love the history of this they wrote the touch based on a line from the movie Iron Eagle which if you don't know what that is that was sort of like a top gun knockoff that was like the your your like discount rack top gun uh where apparently i think it was just like literally the kids like just says you've got the touch oh oh here we go from stan bush himself there's a scene in the movie where Gossett turns to this young pilot and says kid you've got the touch and we were like yeah what a great song idea and then bush also said we wrote the song for the movie uh for the stallone movie cobra in mind we wanted to get it on the soundtrack but the record label they got it in the transformers movie instead we thought what in the hell is that an animated movie about robots really (laughs) So, the, the entire everyone who's worked on this thing is like, "What's this bullshit?" I guess, <laughs> I guess so. And of course, um, you would also might recognize the touch from Boogie Nights. It's the <laughs> the song that Mark Wahlberg tries to make in the throes of his cocaine addiction, <laughs> which is one of my favorite scenes from the movie. Is them working on that song? Um, it is it is the eight like By the John, touch. C- well, is, John
2: C. is just rocking out to it the yeah. whole
1: time. It is such a perfect, like, just, oh man, he was so upset when Grunge ruined his music career. Um, so anyways, uh, uh, between this film and, uh, another movie, uh, My Little Pony, the movie famous for terrifying children with its horrible, like it doesn't that have the horrible monster in it? That Are horrifies- we bringing,
2: so hold in. I was you just you remember and- a discussion we've had mm-hmm. where in the eighties ah, they just did not understand that children had emotional lives and they just filled all these movies with fucking nightmare fuel just cause they were coked up weirdos. Like, just making money hand over fist. It's, and they yeah. never considered that this was traumatizing. Yes. Like, there was, Like I remember being a kid, um, this is another big deal, is that uh, Transformers was popular for a long time, and the movie itself wasn't that popular in theaters. So, like, a lot of kids were out of the loop, so they would just stumble on the Transformers movie and just out of nowhere watch their, like, hero die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um In fact, so many people missed the movie when it was in theaters that when they unleashed season three with all these new characters, nobody knew what the fuck was happening.
1: Between Transformers and My Little Pony the movie, Hasbro loses $10 million. Good. $10 million, which of course led to G.I. Joe the movie going straight to video, and there was a gym film in development that got totally canned. Which I'm sure my, my fiance would be furious to know. I'll tell her that uh, next time I see her that Transformers ruined a Jim the movie. She loves Jim. wait, really? Uh, yeah, she dressed as Jim for Halloween a Re- couple real, years back. Real talk, right
2: now. Mm-hmm. Uh, while I was researching Transformers, Marie was also <laughs> being like, "Why don't you do an episode on Jim?" I think this is. It's <laughs> we probably Le- will. This is the Lexi and Marie. Yeah, episode I think that's the r- Lexi. Be-
1: that should be the uh, the Halloween episode. Yeah, fucking. Yeah. Oh, we should totally do that. We should totally do that. We'll do a Halloween episode where the where, where the ladies uh, come in and replace us. Um, uh, so anyways. This- As all women should replace As- men. Yes, of course. Please. Punch me. Beat me. If you see me on the street and you're a female woman, just slap me, hurt me. Uh, so anyways, season three. Uh, the story editing moves from Marvel to Sunbow. Shin's ACOM does half the season's animation, uh, giving it a bit of a new look, and fans are real fucking pissed about the death of Optimus Prime, so much so that they lead a letter-writing campaign, which leads Hasbro to resurrect him in the two-part season finale, The Return of Optimus Prime. Uh, Unfortunately, though, I think the damage has been done. Is that the
2: one point. with the zombie uh, Optimus Prime, or not? Because there was a Possibly. weird zombie Optimus Prime as well that ended up killing himself because he realized the sins he was up to. Um, weirdly enough, even though Marvel was off the uh, was off the production, uh, the Sunbow story editors were two comic book legends: mm. Marv Wolfman, oh. who uh, basically revitalized the Teen Titans and wrote uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and Steve Gerber. Who, um, if you you might know as the creator of Howard the Duck, ah, so it's this very so oh, still this uh, American comic book uh, lineage is is still part of it. Um, they also they're mostly in space now. There's a bunch of like new characters and villains they're introducing. They have to keep introducing like. Oh God! So many new toys. Like, did, were the headmasters part of this yet? Were the maybe?
1: Well, I, all right. I, just in general, all I don't have a lot on season three and season four. I just know that season three happens. They bring Optimus Prime back because the fans were so pissed off. Season four happens. Um, uh, I literally wrote '80s Transformers' ends in November 1987. Season
2: four is literally only three episodes just to get off new introductions for the uh, new toy lines.
1: They, they it concludes with the successful restoration of Cybertron, and but at the. At- at, uh, yet the Decepticons still are not totally subdued. They have kind of a little like, ah, we're not, the threat is not over yet, but we're done.
2: The cartoons continue in Japan, where they yes. kind of take on a more anime vibe. And, and they I think continue. Even
1: in Europe, it still sort of prevails a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, unlike in America. It's kind of done in America by this point. But
2: uh, that original run ends up becoming fodder for countless uh, filler on the various syndicated and network uh, cartoon blocks that become popular in the in the 90s
1: so that including
2: uh, a weird thing where uh, it's repackaged Transformers reruns where just they intercut it with live uh, segments where a little kid is standing in in a giant hand and just this fake looking dumb Optimus Prime puppet is just wiggling his mouth shield you know Optimus Prime's not mouth yeah is just waggling up and down. He's like, "That sure was a fun adventure." Ch- I don't know the kid's name. Child. <laughs> Transformers is in the is. It begins its years in the wilderness in America.
1: Yes. Um. Yeah. This pretty much concludes Generation One. <laughs> of Transformers as we know it. That is generation one. It, it, it continues to kind of do well a little bit outside of the country, but for for all intents and purposes, it, it, Transformers goes to bed for like a solid, I don't even know, because I haven't done the research on the, the next bit. But uh, yet, with the but.
2: success of G.I. Joe and Transformers, with this multi-pronged marketing strategy, Hasbro multiplies in size, becomes a trillion-dollar company, mm-hmm. um, absorbs various other toy companies like Kenner and Milton Bradley, and and now Hasbro is, like, nigh-unstoppable. They own, like, basically the entirety of the Western toy market. Yeah, right
1: we now. didn't even talk about how, like, but, oh. uh, uh, how they just complete, like, because there were also the GoBots at the same time and also, um, what's the one, Voltron. There was all, and, and they just crushed that competition with Transformers. Like, like they were in competition with GoBot for like a year, and they just smashed him out of the market completely. Yeah. I mean, they just became the fucking toy maker um, at the time.
2: Stephen D. Hassenfeld, uh, heir to the Hassenfeld brothers, uh, kind of becomes this icon of 80s um, corporate, like, mastership. Uh, he ends up dying in the 90s uh, from the AIDS crisis mm. because he was a closeted gay man, and uh, it wasn't revealed until much later. But uh, basically, yeah, it's the, 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 the story of Transformers is the story of the 80s toy boom.
1: Oh, and I was just going to say an original Optimus Prime in a sealed box, graded mint, is worth over $12,000. An OG Optimus Prime, a, a Series 1 Optimus Prime. But
2: uh, that's not the end of the Transformer story. No. And uh maybe, just maybe, we'll get into some fucking rad rad fucking gorilla men known as Optimus Primal.
1: <laughs> and the Bay Years.
2: And we will speak of the Bay Years <laughs> that we're currently living
1: in. Join us next time, gumshoes. Shoes. Bam, beam, boom,
2: boom,
1: uh, thank you so much for uh, listening to this episode. If you'd like, you have if you haven't done so already, please rate and review us on iTunes. We need them for the numbers. We need them for the numbers, ladies and gentlemen. So if you haven't done so yet, also check out our patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. If you want to support us even further, uh, you get a weekly bonus episode uh and we we work real hard on those and uh we hope that you uh consider doing that because it really actually helps continue this show forward and support us in, in order to enable us to make this show uh every single week and uh yeah you can catch me on twitch hold uh hold nader's hoe on twitch jake you can follow me on twitter at best jake young thank you so much everybody and have a good one you decepticons <laughs>